0: Welcome back everyone to the sixth episode of Immunology and Beyond. Before we get started with the episode, we just wanted to share a couple things. This will be the last episode of this season where we're going to be interviewing our guests. We're hoping to release another episode before we finish off the season, where we get to sit down, myself, Anna, and Dom, to discuss a couple things about our research experience, and that we're hoping to release that as a mini-sode. For today, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Leila Soleimani. Dr. Leila Soleimani started her education at McGill University, where she received her bachelor's in engineering, after which she proceeded to further her education by obtaining a master's degree from the University of Southern California, and then completed her overall education by obtaining a PhD degree from the University of Toronto. Throughout her research career, Dr. Soleimani has taken a multidisciplinary approach in combining innovations in physics, electrical engineering, materials in science, and biochemistry for solving problems in healthcare. She's currently trying to take this multidisciplinary approach in order to combat and determine new methods in order to mitigate or reduce the spread of the COVID-19 virus during this worldwide pandemic. So without further ado, we would like to introduce Dr. Leila Soleimani.
1: Thank you, Dr. Lila Soleimani, for joining us today. And I guess how we wanted to get started was to get to know you a little bit better. Could you tell us a little bit more about your training background and tell us a little bit more about how you got to being a professor at McMaster?
2: Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm I'm very happy to be here. Um, So I have all of my degrees in electrical engineering. So I started as an electrical engineer an electrical engineering student at McGill University. And uh, there I, you know, I, I got exposed to, you know, multiple research projects, and, and I really enjoyed them. So I decided to go to graduate school and did a master's in electrical engineering at University of Southern California. And it's there that I decided, I mean, electrical engineering has a lot of different uh, branches, and a lot of people work on systems level thing, right? How, how does a, a signal processor work, or how do complexity systems work, but I decided to to focus on individual devices, so so really what happens at that single device, what happens, you know, uh, as devices are exposed to light, what happens when electrons are generated, so so really I got interested in that, um, really biophysics or like physics aspects that are also part of engineering. And so I decided to do a PhD, kind of focusing on those things, uh, device uh, physics. And so I did a PhD at University of Toronto again, electrical engineering. But here, the the pro- I was given the option of working on two types of projects. One was related to energy, and one was related to to biosensors and biomedical engineering. And I always, you know, had had this passion for biomedical engineering and the ability to, to make technologies that can help change people's lives. So without hesitation, I chose the project on biomedical engineering. And, and so that's how I got into this field of biosensors. And I've been doing uh, this ever since.
1: Could you elaborate a little bit more about the types of research that you're currently doing now as a PI?
2: Yeah, so I started at McMaster pretty much in a few months, less than a year after I started. I finished my PhD. I started here at McMaster as an assistant professor in engineering of physics and. You know, I, I thought a lot and it took me actually some time to figure out what I want my research to focus on. And now I've come, I've kind of narrowed down to two areas. One is the area of biosensors and one is the area of smart surfaces. So uh, biosensors are devices that I analyze biologically relevant uh, targets like proteins, nucleic acids, small molecules for the purpose of me- making better healthcare decisions. And smart surfaces are, you know, surfaces that can be engineered to have, you know, specific properties. And you might think, you know, these seem like two unrelated sets of projects to focus on, but they, they're quite related in the sense that they all. Integrate materials innovations. So, uh, you know, new materials that new hierarchical micro scale and nanoscale materials are all integrated into these uh, both classes of devices to make them better in terms of, you know, their performance metrics. So that's how it's, it's come down to uh, using, you know, new and advanced materials in biosensing or smart surface systems.
1: Would you say that your want to be able to help people and actually translate some of your findings, would that be one of your main motivations to, again, going from electrical engineering to more of a looking at biosensors?
2: Yeah, that's right. So I guess I've worked on several different types of biosensors at all were defined based on that goal the first type of biosensor that i worked on was was one that was for detecting uh, infectious diseases and you know a lot of times you know you have to do bacterial culture and that's the lengthy process and so the idea was can we do culture-free and rapid bacterial detection and so that that's what really started my career in biosensing. And then we've we've looked into biosensors for detecting proteins that are uh, biomarkers for cancer. And most recently we're looking at biosensors that detect exosomes. Uh, again, uh, these are markers for, for cancers. So it's key to apply these biosensors to a clinically relevant applications uh, to, to really be able to make a difference in people's lives. And so it took, it took us some time to build that capability in our labs, right? First kind of define systems and, you know, build collaborations with people in health sciences, and then move these to, to solving relevant, you know, health problems. And I think we're, we're there now, we're, we're at a point where we're collaborating with, you know, great clinicians. And health scientists and other engineers to really make things that can be applied to point-of-care diagnostics for like continuing health monitoring. So things that look and feel like the glucose monitor, but they can do, you know, a lot more. They don't just look at, you know, marker like glucose, but they can look at things like, you know, a wide range of nucleic acid or proteins for cancer, for infectious diseases and beyond.
1: what is actually the current state of using these biosensors in the clinic not only from your lab but within this field
2: yeah so i'd say um there's two success stories that we often call upon in the field of biosensing one is the glucose monitor right so it's a handheld point of care device that's used by diabetics multiple times a day to measure the blood glucose and it's revolutionized management of diabetes and the other one I would say, is the pregnancy test that, that has been important, you know, in other ways. It's not, pregnancy is not really a, a disease, but it's a device really for health monitoring, one, one could say. So those are two examples. There are other examples that we might be less familiar with. There are, there are handheld devices that look at, you know, electrolytes, uh blood gases etc at the point of care these are handheld devices but they're mostly big and bulky and expensive and they're they're used in emergency departments and hospitals but the two that you can bring home i would say easily are the glucose monitors and the pregnancy tests
1: and those use the same type of technology that you guys are trying to apply for diagnosing other types of diseases, like you said?
2: Well, one of them, the glucose monitor b- builds on the same technology that we use, which is electrochemistry, electrochemical readout. So really uh, translating the capture of biomolecules to, to an electronic signal. And that's where my background in electrical engineering comes into handy because, you know, it's, it's important to get, you know, large signal to noise ratios to get these signals to be sensitive. And then the pregnancy test works on a lateral flow immunoassay. So it's a paper strip and it gives you a visual readout. So those are the two main technologies that a lot of people try to plug in their novel technologies into. So the same readout, but, you know, completely different assays, completely different reagents, just because, a lot of the, the methods for fabricating those sensors, for manufacturing them at the lar- large scale are already existent. So why reinvent the wheel? A lot of people like us, we try to make technologies that kind of uh, transition or allow us to use the same kind of readout technologies to do other things like, you know, cancer management or infectious disease diagnostics. What is
1: your opinion about actually implementing this in the clinic? Do you think that these type of devices could replace other well-known procedures for measuring DNA protein? Or the main point of this is just to be able to cheaply get these to people for them to use in their own home without the need to go into the clinic?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Anna. I I think there's a place for both. There's a place for these high-throughput Laboratory scale instruments that, you know, allow lots of samples to be analyzed in parallel. They need to be operated using uh, laboratory technicians and, and their turnaround time as a result could be longer. Uh, but there's a place for that. And I, and I'll explain a little bit. And then there is a place for point of care diagnostics to, to kind of work together within the healthcare system. So, I think when we when we look at the COVID-19 situation, we could fully appreciate the need for both, right? So we need that kind of centralized testing. We're testing at the hospital, uh, you know, to screen through the whole population. But at the same time, there are applications where you really, people could really benefit from a home test, you know, or a rapid test, you know, at the airport or, you know, at the entry of a school or well, in quarantine, you know, wondering, whether they can they can leave uh, safely leave their their home without making other people sick, but then these are point of care devices by definition are low throughput devices, right? So it's one at a time, whereas you know you still need that that big testing infrastructure. the The two might affect each other, but I think there is a place for both of them and also for research. Uh, scale operations you also need both. So for studying diseases and you know studying biomarkers the pharmaceutical industry really depends on those high throughput assays as well. So so certainly there's a, there's a place for both and I think a successful society will 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 have you know capabilities for doing both.
1: Where do you see this fitting in for something more specific like a cancer diagnosis?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, we call these devices point of care diagnostics, but a lot of times where they really make sense are as monitoring devices, right? Because you get a diagnosis maybe once, right? You get screening maybe once a year, but you monitor your condition every day. So you can afford to go to a life lab once. A year, even once every six months, not a problem, right? It starts to get annoying when you are a recovering patient that your blood markers have to be monitored and you have to go and give blood very frequently or you're not able to do that. And then you, your doctor will not get that kind of real time data that they, they would need to, to make better decisions. Uh, so I'd say, You know, for a lot of cancer patients, predicting recurrence is important. And there's there's different treatments for different cancers. Uh, For selecting those treatments, uh, these kind of of point-of-care biosensors are important, but also for determining whether the treatment they're getting is working. Uh, If not, you know, you wanna rapidly intervene and change that treatment. So anytime that frequent monitoring of the same patient, right, is required then you think about point of care biosensors there it makes sense whereas you know the the centralized testing might might make sense for you know for other things
1: so this is looking at more of a personalized type of biosensor
2: yeah that's right so so i i was actually talking to some companies working on new classes of biomarkers for cancer and they were saying you know the difficulty they're having is that the baseline from one person the baseline let's say concentration of this biomarker from one one person to another person changes and also just one sudden change in concentration of this marker does not indicate you know recurrence of cancer for example but you need to establish that trend and the way you do that you need to frequently measure the baseline level for this particular patient and then continue monitoring to see if an increasing trend is observed with respect to this biomarker. Because if you didn't do this, you make a lot of mistakes. You know, you could, for whatever reason, you get a spike, the patient panics, you know, that generates a lot of unnecessary other tests and perhaps procedures. But when you need to, to monitor the same patient, make sure that really some, some unusual trend is seen and, and to do a reasonable intervention this kind of device would be very useful
1: we want to touch a little bit more about some of the challenges that you faced when trying to develop this technology specifically about the sensitivity of these assays and how specific they can be and some of those challenges
2: yeah so i'd say the biggest challenge facing my my group and also the whole field Is working with complex samples. I mean it's it's an obvious thing, but one where we always get surprised by it. Because you know, we'll we'll develop our assays with these purified proteins that are that are suspended in these clean buffer solutions. And you know, we get beautiful limited detections and great specificity and rapid response. And then you know, we're given this. The saliva sample that not only, you know, has all kinds of stuff that, that interferes with, with our reading. All of this background is variable from one, one sample to another. And a lot of times it comes in addition to preservatives and processing reagents and uh, reagents that are added when these samples are collected. So then. You end up with something that ends up being completely different to, to what you developed the assay with and you almost have to re-engineer the device there. So. I think that's that's really the, what's been the biggest challenge and what's really slowed down some of the commercialization uh, of these types of technologies. And that's something that we and a lot of other you know researchers are working to, to overcome.
1: Does this mean that your lab is shifting to more, actually testing more of like a crude sample? For example, if you want to test cancer, you get a site that's going to be full of tumor cells and different debris and stuff like that. So are you guys moving toward doing sort of that type of thing
2: we are at a place where we have biosensors that that work very well with these kind of purified samples but now we're talking to clinicians and figuring out you know what are the most relevant samples you know and, and we're retesting our assays with these kind of crude samples as you, you mentioned and we're figuring out what are some manageable processing steps that we could implement that is still, Within the acceptable performance of a point-of-care assay, uh, but one that does the job. So, so that's been our refocusing efforts to to get there, to to focus more on you know crude samples, real samples, patient samples.
1: Is there any other type of technologies or newer type of techniques that are being developed in the field to kind of push
2: these forward? People have realized that this is really. Key and there's a lot of technologies as well for, for detecting in crude samples. So both you can use things like, you know, novel and uh, novel probes that work well in crude unprocessed samples. So these are things like functional nucleic acids, let's say that operate well in crude samples. And there is, there's all kinds of surface engineering that can happen uh, to coat um, the surface of your uh, your electrodes with anti-fouling, for example, polymers, and on top of that, so so these say, okay, if if you're putting your device in an unprocessed crude sample, what are the things we could do to uh, allow the the device to operate for it not to fail? Uh, but then there's all all. Other class of researchers that are working on miniaturized devices for actually doing the sample processing in an automatic and integrated fashion. So that's in the area of microfluidics. So rather than in the lab, how do we do extraction? We, we, you know, take a sample. We might add beads. We might do elution. And, you know, we might mix reagents, etc. We might pass things through a filter, but the, the microfluidic chips allow all of that to happen with the press of a button in a very tiny chip-based system. So that's being kind of worked on in parallel while the sensor people are, are also working, you know, to in- improve sensitivity and specificity, etc. And these have to come together, right? That all of these innovations in different fields have to come together to make this, this biosensor a reality, not something that, that works in a lab but you know it, it fails as soon as you you interface it with real samples
1: well thank you for showing all your expertise in terms of biosensors but i think we also want to touch a little bit more about the other side of the research that sure. we do and so i know that your lab has shifted a little bit during the covid19 pandemic so sure. could you elaborate a little bit about the work you're doing on your smart surfaces and how that mm-hmm. applies to viruses
2: yeah so that that's that's a very exciting direction so uh, so it really evolved from our biosensor work because we were looking at surfaces that, that's eliminated or reduced adhesion of unwanted biological materials when we interface our sensors with uh, matrices like urine, like blood. And then we made this, this hierarchical structure. So what that means is that a structure that puts together materials from different length scales. So we have materials in the length scale of Molecules all the way to the length scale of bacteria. So nanoscale to, to microscale. And so we have this hierarchical structure similar to structures found in nature. And what we realize is that this surface is just really good at repelling all kinds of materials. So first we started working with all kinds of liquids. We put the liquid on these surfaces and they bounce off because they're hydrophobic and they're also oleophobic. So they repel both materials like, you know, water, also things like different kinds of oil. And then we thought, okay, could these also prevent adhesion and proliferation of bacteria? So uh, we did experiments and we realized that, you know, you put something like uh, multi-drug resistant Staph aureus that typically creates these, these biofilms on different surfaces under uh, the right conditions. On these surfaces, these biofilms are significantly reduced and uh, adhesion in general of bacteria is reduced. And so this is when, you know, we, we published this result and there is there was an overwhelming interest in using these surfaces. So we had people calling and emailing and asking like, where can we buy this? We want to use it for food packaging. We want to put it on elevator buttons. We want to, you know, we want to put it on robotic arms that are used in farming. So it was it was just like nothing I'd worked on before the kind of interest we got. And then we knew we had to, we wanted to see how well these work with viruses in repelling viruses. And, you know, we were, well, we were thinking of, you know, finding the right postdoc and the right technician, COVID-19 happened. And so we, you know, together with my collaborator, Professor Didar, we went and saw Professor Oshkar and asked them, what do you think about, you know, testing these surfaces with, with viruses to see whether they can play a role in this pandemic? And, you know, he was, he was, very generous with his time and, and the resources in the lab. And so this is when this, where this collaboration started. And, and so we tested this surface out with human simplex virus HSV first. And, you know, we said to ourselves, let's put a reasonable goal. If it, if it reduces contamination by three logs, from a normal surface then say we you know this is a good surface perhaps we will continue otherwise we'll go and reengineer it uh, so then we 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 tested this and we saw absolutely we we saw more than three lives i think we saw four to five lots uh, difference and so if you touched these surfaces that we call the repel wrap with a with a contaminated stamp that, that mimics human touch you know, very little got transferred. You touched another plastic that was of the same kind, but was not processed with hierarchical structuring. Ten to the five more folds of viruses got transferred. So, so it was quite incredible. And uh, and then so we also worked with Professor Ashgar and Dr. Vahidi, the, the postdoc that worked in that lab. And so we, we tested the human coronavirus as well. Uh, and, you know, we saw very similar results that, that indeed these surfaces uh, reduce contamination. So what, what this means is that that's one way of contamination spreading, right? From, from one person touching the surface, another person picking up that contamination and touching their face. And so. If a contaminated hand touches the repel wrap, that contamination stays on the hand rather than transferred to the surface because the surface does not, you know, the energetics of the surface are in a way that will not support that transfer. And so that surface stays clean even in contaminated cir- circumstances that are here today. And so, so we think it, this, this surface has a role to play. Not with just COVID nineteen, but you know, this is this is just one infectious disease outbreak and and they relatively frequently happen in hospitals. So, you know, covering surf high touch surfaces in hospitals, public transport, schools. So we're trying to explore all of these possibilities.
1: We want to touch a little bit more about Maybe the commercialization aspect of these technologies that you described, you said that you're looking to actually implement these at a higher level hospitals. How do you specifically know when the biosensors that you're developing in the lab could potentially be made for commercial use?
2: Yeah. So normally the first thing we do, we, you know, when we have a new invention, we, we file for an invention disclosure to basically document the day that this invention was kind of reported. That gives us a bit of time till we file what's called a provisional patent. So with the provisional patents, We, we have a year to convert that into a full patent. And all of that will do with, in collaboration with the McMaster Industry Liaison Office, Milo. So that's really the first step and really a preliminary step to commercialization. And then uh, the rest comes to the the finance and also the technical aspects of commercialization. So you know a lot of times you know at this if you you have something that you believe in, uh, you you want to continue working on it to show that it's a commercially viable prototype. You have to show that it's it can be scaled up. So, you know, we, we might be able to make the surface or a biosensor, you, we can make one prototype, it might take us a year to do it and it's fine, but, you know, we have to, to you know, potentially make millions of it. Can we do that at a reasonable price? And a lot of times, you have to do a lot of experiments to figure that out, to, to go from, you know, a very manual process to, to one that can be easily automated so scale up is very key and then also you have to do a lot of you know real life beta testing so once you have Different uh, prototypes. Then you have to test it. If it's a biosensor, you know, with clinically relevant or clinical samples. If it's the wrap, you know, you probably have to. I mean, we're in the process of figuring out what's the right experiment, but you probably have to install it in that hospital environment and see does it really reduce the spread of infection. I mean, there's one thing showing in the lab that things don't touch on it. Another, it's a completely other. Thing to show it really does reduce the spread of infection. There's a value proposition. It's worth the extra work and the extra cost. So we have to show that. And then a lot of times, you know, you have to generate the data using the actually manufactured prototypes for getting regulatory approval. So scale up uh, real life studies and then regulatory approval. And, and all of thing, all of these things need a lot of money and they're expensive. You know, a lot of people have to work on it, uh, and with different, different skill sets. So, so then a big part of all of this becomes, can you convince people that this is an important, Business case that, you know, people are actually going to buy it and there's a profits to to be made. And then people would invest in, in first playing, paying for that R and D and then later manufacturing, going through regulatory approval. And distributing, you know, this this product. So, so it's a, it's a long process that I'm myself learning about. Uh, but it's one that that I think it's important because at the end of the day, whatever we make, you'll see the full impact only when it gets to people's hands.
1: Is this mainly happening with collaborations with industry, or does this happen within the level of your lab? Do you think you would ever start your own biotechnology company?
2: Yeah, so these are all good potential routes, both of which you mentioned, and we're exploring both of them. So one approach is to have what's called what what would be a McMaster spinoff company, uh, but it, it's probably something that we would involve other entrepreneurs who have experience with this in our team, and we would partner with with those kind of people to to move this forward. Another way of getting this to the market would be to go. And, and really partner with established biotechnology companies and um, get them to license the technologies. And we would still be involved in the R&D, et cetera, but, uh, you know, much of the decision making would be done by those. So, so these are the two routes that, that we're exploring. And so, you know, both of them could lead to commercialization.
1: just our last question to end off this section of the interview for somebody listening that's interested in the work that you're doing but doesn't necessarily have the bioengineering background do you think that that's something essential to be um, undertaking this kind of
2: research yeah so that's a great question so you know we have a diverse team and we have people from sciences health sciences and engineering and only working together we can we can solve these these kind of grand challenges so yeah we're we're absolutely looking for people with those exact backgrounds that you mentioned immunology and biochemistry the most important thing is we're looking at people who are interested, who, who would love to try kind of stepping outside their, their comfort zone and trying something new. And that, that's really the requirement, right? Somebody who, who, who wants to learn new things and is not afraid to, to go outside their field.
1: Thank you. And so with that, I think we're going to pass the mic over to Dom, who's going to be asking you more of the personal questions.
3: Yeah. So to really just lay off of what you just mentioned about collaborating with others, and a lot of your research is interdisciplinary. So how do you effectively manage collaborations between so many different disciplines?
2: So collaborations are, are really exciting, and they're really fun. But I, I, I also have to say they're they're not Easy, so they're not free of challenges. Uh, so I think the key thing is communication. So we want to, you know, be in very frequent communications with our collaborators and make decisions together, make the key decisions together. And I think that that's been really important for the team approach. Uh, you know, people coming from from different. Uh, disciplines, you know, to just kind of get in the same meeting as frequently as time allows and, and, you know, just make the key decisions together. I think that that's the most important letter, lesson that I, I have learned so far.
3: When do you think or how did you end up learning these skills? Were they kind of on the go or was it something that you were introduced to within your PhD? How did you end up learning these skills for effective collaboration?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I I was fortunate enough to work with, you know, be co-supervised between electrical engineering and biochemistry and pharma school sciences in my PhD. So I had that exposure uh, for sure. But um, kind of as a project lead at McMaster, I, I'd say I, I learned by mistakes. I, I made a lot of mistakes in collaborations that might not have gone as well as they should have perhaps because I was more naive and maybe more selfish. And then I learned that, you know, I, I really do need these collaborations and I, you know, I, I have to to learn to communicate better, communicate effectively, you know, generate consensus kind of when you work, uh, you know, with a the, with the team and uh, And you know, compromise when needed, so I think it's something that i've I've been exposed to, but I've, but I've, it's taken me some time to learn here at McMaster
3: with graduate students or current trainees or postdocs, et cetera, so thinking about doing these collaborations, how do you think students or trainees can start to get these skills just based on the mistakes that you have learned as you went on?
2: Yeah. So I'd say, you know, have, it's great to have initiative and, you know, and not just be focused on your own research, but take interest in, in, in other people's research, not just in your lab, but other, other people's labs, like increase the chances of those collaborative collisions for yourself by participating in, in events or seminars that can make that happen. I know it's, it's, it's more virtual now than before, but still, I guess the opportunities are there. They're just presented differently. And then, you know, get into discussions uh, initially, not thinking, Oh, uh, what, you know, what collaborations is it, is it going to happen? Is it going to benefit me? So initially just kind of exploring possibilities and being open minded. And then later, It it helps to put together specific and clear goals with, with your collaborators. And again, being constant communication, I think those things help a lot.
3: So another thing you mentioned that you were big on was communication. So in terms of science communication, what are your opinions on having an online presence? Or do you think it's useful as a researcher in academia?
2: Yeah, I think uh, it's not something that I, I consider my own strength. I think I, you know, recently with COVID-19 felt that, you know, if you don't have an online present, people will not know you at all. And, you know, it's 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 difficult to to promote your research. So I think more than ever, I, I realized that's key. And as a student, I would, you know, get on Twitter Follow the people that inspire me. That I want to know the research. If I, you know, get inspired, I would tweet about it. Kind of build a network, and and uh, you know, this for most part, the, the scientific community online is a supportive community. I think uh, so. So it's good to 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 start early and kind of build that network online.
3: In terms of work-life balance, so with running your own lab and managing all of these collaborations across different fields and also with commercialization of your product, what tips and advice would you give to other students for that?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know if this is something I'm very good at, but it's something that I've become more aware, uh, especially now, working from home, uh, right? So, yeah, I, I mean, I think it comes back to, for me, it comes back to efficiency. I try to prioritize. And be efficient and delegate. Those are the three skills that I'm, I'm trying to build so that, you know, I have more time for, for things other than work. Yeah. And I, I I've gotten better at it. I think, you know, focusing on, you know, the most important things uh, and getting help. I think that's, that's really been what, what, what I, what I, I've, I've tried. But again, I, I, that's something that I certainly have to work on myself.
3: I'm going to ask the last. One of the last questions. This is when we ask all of our guests. So looking back on your career, so looking back, even just going from your bachelor's to master's PhD, now running your own lab, what piece of advice would you tell yourself? So your younger self, looking back on how you've made it through?
2: Yeah, I think... You know, over the years, I learned to be a lot more open minded and positive, actually, than, than when I was a student. You would think it's the opposite, but I think, you know, uh, you know, when I was a student, I was very much like, when there was a new idea, I was always thinking, well, I'm not sure if this is going to work, or I would find a thousand reasons why it maybe wasn't a good idea. Uh, and now I've, I've become more like, okay, well, how can we, how can we be more creative and make this work so i think that's that's one thing that i i would do differently perhaps i would uh, you know be more open-minded more positive and and also be i would have probably been you know less afraid right because this these things are all kind of together you know oh my god i have to graduate my phd in 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 a year and i you know all that brings a lot of anxiety and and you know a lot of it, it did bring some somewhat a lot of negativity for me at the time and I, I think uh, you know just kind of saying yes and and seeing what happens and being positive probably would have made my journey maybe more fun but also you know it would have perhaps uh, allowed me to do even more interesting things but but something that I think I would have done differently.
3: so. I just, just a follow up to that, um, cause I do think a lot of students can relate to that as well as you're in deep into your research. There's like time constraints and things like that. And you mentioned thinking about all of the ways that it's not going to work instead of thinking about how it possibly can. So, in your opinion, what are some actionable steps to help you go through that process when you're stuck in it?
2: Yeah. Um, I guess uh somebody told me that you know you need to to think you know when a new idea comes you got to think of yes and rather than yes but right and and i think uh, at, at least you should give yourself the luxury of thinking about these new ideas yes and you don't have to go and do it right away but you also don't have to go and dismiss it right away, right? So just kind of give yourself the opportunity to, to explore it, to have it kind of run in the back of your mind or in parallel or with with all the other things that you're doing. Perhaps it's a practical way to, to, to have that yes and attitude going
1: on. Okay. So with that, we want to thank you for coming today and joining us and sharing all of your expertise.
2: Thanks for doing this. It's great.
1: Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Immunology and Beyond podcast. Please remember to follow us on Twitter at Immuno and Beyond. You can also find us on our new Instagram page at Immunology and Beyond. And if you want to keep up to date with the latest research from the McMaster Immunology Research Center, you can follow them on Twitter at Mac Immunology. Thanks for tuning in, and hopefully, you join us on our next episode.
0: And this was your weekly dose of immunology.